Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Good evening, good morning, good afternoon, good night. Welcome to the podcast, wherever you are listening from. I'm delighted today to have two amazing women from the world of journalism and media uh, as our guest today. Louise Bruton is one of the most charming and funny women working in the Irish media landscape of journalism, spanning a wide variety of topics from music reviews to access rights. She's a regular contributor to the Irish Times and numerous other publications worldwide. She describes herself as off the wall and honest and personally she's one of my favourite journalists in Ireland. I just love her work. I love how much she advocates for women and women's equality as well. I'm so delighted to have her on the show. And our second guest is Margaret E. Ward, who has many arrows to her bow. But broadly speaking, Margaret is an entrepreneur, a journalist, a broadcaster. She's worked for the Irish Times, the Sunday Times, NPR. She's currently the CEO of Clear Inc. And she has served on the board of the European Movement Ireland as chair of Women on Air. Women on Air is a community of like-minded women and men who want to hear and see more women across the board on the airwaves. Over the last 25 years, we have seen huge strides in the representation of women in our industry. Although the current situation is by no means perfect, it is getting better. So without further ado, welcome to the show. Great. How are you? I am absolutely brilliant. You know what? Just doing this podcast um, the last few weeks and getting to speak to so many amazing women is just, it's one of my favourite times of the week, just getting to sit down and chat about just empowering issues and, and, and you know, just getting to open up a conversation and, and, and learn and, you know, express our feelings and our thoughts on, you know, politics, on society, on women's rights. So how has everything gone for you both? Um, I really can't complain <laughs> at the moment. Um, thing, well, things have been weirdly tricky, but I think because everyone is in a weirdly tricky position, um, I think yeah. people have become a little bit more human towards each other. Um, so yeah. when you get a job, you're very appreciative of it. And in my experiences, all the editors that I've been working with have been very supportive of the fact that like work is kind of scarce on the ground, especially in kind mm. of arts and culture where I normally work in. Um, yeah. So it kind of, it's kind of, it's been a nice kind of leveler between people. The There's a little bit of the hierarchy's gone a little bit. And um, mm. so that makes, it just makes things a lot easier, even though things are extremely difficult <laughs> on the outset. Yeah. Yeah. Because I think the competitiveness of the, the way it used to be kind of, you know, pre-COVID has dissipated a bit because everyone is mindful of each other and mindful of the gap that exists, especially within the spectrum of the entertainment and the music scene where, you know, gigs and, and live music and whatnot, a lot of topical kind of areas that you would cover are are gone now. So it's more, I think there's definitely a more kind of um, understanding and thoughtful atmosphere, all right. And Margaret, how about yourself? How are you finding it? Yeah, I find that people are definitely more aware of mental health and um, 
are probably a little bit more patient with one another. I agree with you, Louise. And I think that employers um, are more mindful of that, you know, so there are more wellness programs being launched in different industries. Um, The conversations are more personal. How are you doing? You know, how are the kids? Um, How are you? And especially for people in their 20s who are working from home, I think they're really struggling because they live alone or they live with a bunch of people and they're working from their bedroom and there's a lot of isolation there. So it's nice to see that in this great pause that maybe some of our humanity has been uh, returned to us, which is nice. Yeah, when things are rush, 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 I think people have kind of got a better insight that our life outside work can actually affect our work as it's happening as well. So we are, we are kind of getting a better idea, especially when people are working from home and you can see that people have how many number of kids or if they've got housemates or if um, something is going on with their family, we can kind of see it in a more kind of human to human context. And also because things are a little bit more casual because you're meeting, you're meeting work people on zoom and everyone's in their kind of casual wear. there's no more kind of like suit and tie kind of thing happening at the moment. So yeah, I think people are kind of just seeing each other on the same level at the moment. And that's something that I really hope kind of carries over. Yeah. The veil of kind of that sugar coated. My life is always great. has definitely lifted because people are kind of, you know, they have to stop and pause and take a look around and think, you know, what really matters. Um, I think that's the great thing about COVID is that people are kind of waking up to a lot of things, but that behaving a certain way and, and putting yourself out there a certain way and, and in the workplace and personal life and, and public life. And, you know, I think that's a, that's the positive of COVID. In terms of, you know, this year and, and everything that's happened, um, one of our guests there just recently was Dr. Um, Jennifer Cassidy, who is an absolute juggernaut in the political world. She um, lectures in Oxford and she does a lot with regards to women in politics and finding your voice. And we spoke about, obviously, the American political <laughs> circus that has gone on the last four years, but particularly the last few weeks, and women kind of finding their voice and it, it being a time for people to kind of go, because they're not so preoccupied with their day-to-day and, and everything that involves just having that freedom that we don't have anymore um i think it's definitely it's more kind of we can retrospectively look and go okay well this there's so many issues in the world that we wouldn't have had the time to actually observe and view and look at from the from a really clear-cut um standpoint and perspective and with that in mind like you know we have huge just huge, huge socio-economic, social-political and massive, massive historic changes happening in Ireland and further afield with the Black Lives Matter movement, with, you know, women finding their collective voice with the gender disparity report across Irish radio uh, this year and with, you know, women on air. Margaret, I know that you worked really, really closely with women on air over the last few years, which is a community of like-minded women and men who want to hear more and see more women on air. And I mean... And it's so, so important. I mean, and we're still not really at the place where we want to be. And Louise, from, I mean, a journalist perspective, have you seen, especially in the music industry, have you seen a huge 
increase in women writing? Because I have from like a publicist perspective, I mean, there's so many amazing women writing about music and that I constantly see in, I mean, you've uh, Leslie in the uh, Irish Independent now, you have, you know, your wonderful self, you've Andrea Cleary, there's so many amazing women coming up the ranks and their stories, their, you know, how they're contributing to the culture and the tapestry of our culture is just so vibrant now. Have you seen that in a massive way change or or what way has that, um, you know, has that path gone for you? Well, there's one thing that I would really like to maybe have some more security in. And is that and that is kind of longevity in, in careers for women in journalism. Yeah. Um, yeah. You can kind of when you look at like the kind of top tier bylines, there's not as many women there. So maybe there's mm-hmm. a lot more kind of women kind of entering the the field now and they're kind of yeah. getting there. Maybe they're maybe in their five, seven years. But I would like to see more kind of life lasting careers in journalism for women because there, there isn't a huge amount of security there for a number of reasons. Obviously, with like maternity leave, um, especially if you're mm-hmm. self-employed, there, there isn't security there. But also in just the way that sometimes jobs are given to people, it's to who you're, you're it's friends giving friends jobs or yeah. friends giving uh, familiar people their these jobs as well and that yeah. can happen in sort of a, an older kind of male age group which is quite mm. unfair and I think that younger women have a lot more to kind of voice um to voice for themselves but they mm. have harder door a heavier door to open because it's almost like and I can say this from my own experience it's like you're almost tested harder than your kind of your male peers even though you might have just as much experience or more experience than them so there is this kind of level where you have to you have to try harder and it it shouldn't be an industry where you have to have a thick skin to thrive it should be talent it should be hard work it shouldn't be how many rejections you can handle or how many rude emails you can handle or how many times you can see a less qualified man that get the job that you should be getting and it's not mm-hmm. the lack of people applying it's just kind of the way the favoritism works um yeah so that's something that i'd like to see there are there's so many there's so many incredible um kind of women kind of entering de- definitely the arts and culture kind of writing um area but i would love to be able to i'd love to be able to kind of like oh the the jim carroll like i'd love to be able to kind of like here's a woman who's been writing so long about music and she she and herself is a name uh, yeah. the same way that we kind of look towards Jim Carroll with music and like Donald Clark with film I'd love to be like that way about kind of more women I know we've got Tara Brady and I know we've got likes of like Lauren Murphy as well but I would just like to be able to have a, a bigger spectrum of women who have been there for so long that they are the go-to because we have women now but like it's, it's hard to know if they'll be there in like five years yeah we we're speaking about this again at the, the podcast the other day about the maternity versus paternity leave and Sweden have introduced it in the last few years where they're trying to get men to engage more with that role and it was first met with haste and men kind of being of the opinion no 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 that's the woman's role but they went no we are constantly judged if a woman is of a certain age and obviously it it is an illegal action to do but it does happen like let's face it it does happen that if you're in your 30s early 30s specifically and you go for a role or you're in a job and you reach the stage where you're of childbearing years you know your employer does look at you and go 
Mm, I mean, if we give her this uh, promotion or if we give, if we assign her these tasks, will she be reliable? Will she disappear with having to go on maternity leave? And they're trying to change that structure and how people view women and their, and their place. And I think that has really been a detrimental effect up until this point. And again, we, we have to kind of, it does have to be implemented in a better way. Um, but have you seen kind of that type of thing happen or is it just basically, you know, that kind of nepotism kind of like, oh, you know, it's people that know know someone that knows someone, they just hand it down. It's probably a combination of those things. I, I suppose if, yeah. if you are kind of surrounded by that kind of nepotism and then if you are kind of entering that stage of your life where you're deciding to have a family or you are having a family, if you experience that kind of nepotism, it might kind of take a little bit of wind out of yourself. You're kind of like, okay, well, I'll actually just bow out here because this is going to happen. Um, if Because, you know yourself, if you don't feel welcome in an area, it's very hard to stick around when another life choice comes around. So I think that that's yeah. something that will affect a lot of um, people who are making that decision about whether or not they're going to have a family um, if they're if they're working in the media. Yeah. And Margaret, um, how do you feel about that really like yourself? Well, I think it's interesting, right? So um, if you look at the number of men in media who have full time pensionable roles versus women who have full time, you know, pensionable roles, I know that those are like hen's teeth these days and many journalists are freelancer contract men are the ones who tend to get the jobs and women are the ones who tend to be put on the forever contract. Yeah. And, you know, uh, Louise's predecessors in arts and culture were named journalists for many, many years, but they had to leave because they weren't given jobs. Right. Mm -hmm. So they might've been working in this field for 10 years, they were on radio programs. They were hosting them. They had, you know, regular columns in newspapers. They were on television programs. They were everywhere. And no matter what they did, they weren't given the jobs. So they had to leave. Now they went to become, you know, novelists or filmmakers or art critics or whatever. But the reality is that this pattern just keeps continuing. So in my experience in, um, you know, newsrooms and, um, you know, Irish newspapers and media organizations, there's a huge lack of security for women. They never seem to get the job. You know, they're they're fine to fill in for presenters during uh, the summer. You know, they seem to be fine, but they never get the big gigs in any of the commercial radio stations. Um, Another thing is, you know, I agree with you about the maternity leave thing. Like when I became pregnant with my first child, one of my editor's first comments at the time was, oh, you know, once you have that baby in your hands, you're not going to want to come back into us. Mm. And I I looked at it and I was like, what? I love it over. <laughs> I was like, hang on a second. Like I've been working as a journalist since I was 18 years of age. And I knew I wanted to be a writer from the age of eight. What makes you think that anything is going to change? And I couldn't understand, like suddenly because I was using my womb, I was mm. less than, <laughs> I was less than I now was not the same as everybody else. And they stopped inviting me to editorial meetings. Oh my right. And this is, this is not uncommon. It's not uncommon. And the other way that they um, make sure that women don't get a foothold is they don't offer flexi time. So if you have or they haven't until recently, you know, there was a big thing when I was in an organization and flexi time had been promised for parents and the men also wanted this. And when it came down to it, they were like, no, 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 we can't do that. 
So that was, that was management's um, willful decision not to offer flexibility, which meant that the women left, right? So when I started in journalism in Ireland in, I think, probably 1996, and then I kind of was full-time from 1999, um, there were men and women in my area in equal number. And mm. now there's only yeah. one woman in that department who has a job. One. Right. Same thing with the newsroom. When I went, there were very significant numbers of women working in the newsroom as news editors, as whatever. Now, either either they're freelance or they're not in positions of power. So from what I've seen in most of the Irish media over the last 20 years is that there's been a masculinization of the media. Right. So if you look at all the newspapers, who's running the newspapers now, who are the senior managers and who are the full time staff? They're men. I'm guessing it's homogenized as well. This is just oh, a guess. very yeah, much. Guess. So, yeah, I mean, we're, we're talking about, you know, um, middle class white men who went to certain schools. Now, it didn't used to be that. Like, we had greater variety in Irish journalism because you would people, there was no need to go to university if you were a journalist, if you didn't want to. You know, you could start working in a local newspaper at 18, a big national would see what you've done, and they would bring you on board then. You know, they'd be like, Mm. oh, they're amazing, right? So we had people from working class communities. We had people from all different kinds of, um, you know, socioeconomic and educational backgrounds, points of view, that type of thing. Now at the top, Mm. okay, yes, you did tend to have, you know, college educated, wealthy um, white men. But um, yeah, I think it's something that we haven't questioned enough. Mm. And unfortunately that when younger journalists come in, female journalists, they don't have mentors, older, you know, female mentors will say, well, this is the way it's been. And here's what you need to do if you want to change it. And Mm. many of the women, like when I I started Women on Air 10 years ago, I founded Women on Air and I was the chair of it for four years and I would be working with young women. And I was like, you know, like you should actually join Women on Air because it's to help you um, you know, have more profile um, in your job and to be taken seriously. And younger women were like, oh, no, 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 like that doesn't affect me. And I said, well, you know what? In the end, everybody comes to Women on Air. Just wait. Five years later, they will come and they'd be like, yeah, I didn't realize how much discrimination there was. And yeah, Yeah. I I need some help. It's it's what what amazes me. Uh, I can only speak about this year because really I... It was only this year that I really had the courage, should I say? Yeah, probably courage is the best word, to finally find my own voice in terms of I've seen so much systematic misogyny and sexism in the workplace. Just, I mean, the things that used to be said, I mean, I just got so desensitized to, oh, that's, can I have a coffee? And I'd be kind of going, I'm the publicist or I'm the label manager or, you know, it was just constantly being met with, oh, there's a woman in the room. She clearly isn't on a team where there's predominantly men here. So she must be the coffee person or this or that. And it's kind of, you know, this year kind of stepped out of the, um, I suppose, the confinements of that frame of thought of just accepting that that was a woman's kind of, you know, I, I, I was, I wouldn't say I was anti-feminist. I just was resolute in the fact that this is not going to change and nothing that I do is going to change it. And then I kind of went, well, you know what, what have you got to lose? You know, if you put your voice out there and actually ask the question, well, why not her? Like, what, why, why is it always a guy that gets things? And 
there's so much that I've seen and, and so many of my colleagues from journalists to, to radio DJs to artist managers and people that work in all different areas of media and it's kind of and I've I was aware of the work that um, certainly the feminists have done and women on air and I was I always looked from a distance kind of kind of going oh I couldn't really could I go could I ask or could I kind of you know venture over but I think a lot of women have that kind of fear of if they speak out will they be looked upon as shrill seeking and oh this is she's being very bitchy isn't she like oh she's oh why why is she kind of stepping outside her role of she should be happy with having that role there and that she's working with such and such a band or such and such a label or you know and I think that 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 is definitely a fear-mongering yeah. aspect and, of yeah I mean it, it, that is so interesting right and so if you look at like mm. we're taught when we're girls that you know the world's our oyster and it's all equal and if we work hard at school and we go good grades then we'll get a good job mm. and when we get a good job of course people will recognize how talented we are but yeah. the reality is that work is not a meritocracy the deck is already stacked against you unfortunately mm. because you're a woman and yeah. You have to be, as Louis said, you have to be more talented than your male colleagues to even get any notice. And if you are somebody who succeeds in a male-dominated world, and I always did. Look, I was always one of the guys. I worked on a trading floor in Manhattan. I played sports with the guys. I could tell dirty jokes like the guys. And then when I started speaking out about it, I was like, did you not notice this? Like, there's something really wrong here. And why am I the only woman on a panel talking about economics and finance? I know hundreds of women who are more knowledgeable than I am. They would kind of be like, well, like, but you're special. Yeah, you're, you're one is enough. You know, there's one, what, why would you want more women? Like, you know, what you, this is your lot and you should be happy with it kind of thing. Yeah, but also that you're special. We let you in the club. So don't start mm, talking the against the club. club. And the thing is, like, there were repercussions for that. And I was like, I don't care. This is wrong. Like, you're ignoring 50% of the world's talent by thinking that all the talent in the world rests with white, <laughs> Western, heterosexual, middle-class men. Like, that's statistically impossible. I mean, how do you, how do you even go about trying to change that landscape you have to speak up you know like i'll tell you as a campaigner one thing that really annoys me is that other women expect people like me to do the heavy lifting for them you know like my my shoulders are okay and i know you understand Mm. this as well there's a big price for campaigners in terms of burnout and you know Mm. and you are risking your reputation in some ways by speaking out but if you're a group of people right and this is something waking the feminists was aware of i remember talking to them before they launched and saying your leader will be targeted professionally they'll try to take them down professionally and um Mm. um, waking the feminists was like okay well look there will be a group of us you know so the thing is having a group mentality like we're all in this together we all want to see change then that means people won't be as targeted but the other thing is we need to bring men with us yeah we don't bring men with us on this journey nothing is going to change no exactly and it's not about like people are like oh knowledge is power and 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 whatnot but it's but I feel it's more re-educating people as opposed to educating it's kind of it's looking at it from a different angle because there's different waves of feminists and and feminist movement and, and whatnot but if it's always going to be men against women absolutely nothing will change because it will always be seen as this 
rivalry, this kind of, you know, loggerheads. And I'm totally, I mean, I've been on panels in the last few months of smashing the patriarchy. And I always kind of said, why are you calling it this? You know, I mean, yes, there is an issue with patriarchy, but if we keep using these negative words and, and connotations towards who people who we want as our equals, men, you know, it's not going to be very productive. And I totally hear you with that, is that we have to rise together and not just be a collective of women against the broad majority of our men, you know, and yeah. it's it's just, it's just, it's there's so many kind of barriers and, 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 blocks in the road along the way and it's really about people understanding that we can't do it unless there is that you know camaraderie there is that respect and that mutual kind of want to to change I mean my brother um he studied philosophy um in uh Maynooth where you're from um Louise and he you know a few years ago he was totally no such thing as feminism but gender pay gap is ridiculous and that is that and to the extent where we would argue so much that I we, we stopped talking for about three years until my grandmother died and we met up at the funeral and he just turned around and he said I'm so sorry he said I was looking at it from a male white male privileged perspective he said I was so I surrounded myself with only the same people that talk like me and I just and I thought that was so amazing for him to have totally turned around his whole viewpoint in just three years because he he went to he's then went to Kilkenny and did um part of a degree there and he met with this amazing Swedish girl who he is dating and obviously Sweden is one of the most progressive countries for feminist movement in the world they just know how to get shit done and she really changed his his viewpoint and and I owe her a debt of gratitude but fair play but like he also grew up Totally, you know, and, and he did because he surrounded, he changed his environment, you know, and and that's really all it takes because, I mean, it's it's that environment, it's that kind of shift in who you surround yourself with. And I think that there is definitely, um, I mean, it, it, with Louise, like you just mentioned, uh, just a, a few women, um, female peers, but obviously there's so many more like male peers. How do you feel they kind of treat um and I was actually looking at your TEDx um talk from a few years ago where you actually delved quite uh, intensely into the question of how would you like to be treated and you know it's it's just so important to our inter our daily interactions with our peers and how they see our roles uh, as women um and how they play out I mean how has that experience been for you? Well, I think that story about your brother is a really good example and a really good argument of how we actually should smash the patriarchy because men men suffer under the patriarchy as well. Totally. That's the thing. Men feel that they have to behave a certain way. Men are maybe cajoled to perform in a certain way. Um, Maybe they feel like they can't speak out because they have to keep this exterior of being kind of stony faced and in charge. But when you when you disassemble the patriarchy, that means that men will be able to kind of actually take take a breath, be able to take a bit of a load off their shoulders and look towards their female peers and be able to kind of share the floor with them equally rather than feeling that they have to behave in a certain way. Because because men are suffering under the patriarchy as well. Like if they are in a boardroom, I have no idea what this is like, but if they are in a boardroom where they're in the majority and they see a woman or someone else in a minority from a minority background being treated badly, they may, may not feel like they have the place to speak up. Um, and that, that's that's the result of being told that they have to behave a certain way their entire life. Um, but I think when it comes to that as well, 
there is a personal responsibility, of course. There's a personal responsibility to speak up against kind of institutionalized behavior. Um, and the way that things are changing now in the media is we are, most of us are coming in in kind of a freelance way or in a startup way, or um, we have to, we're creating jobs because the jobs aren't there for us. The traditional jobs aren't there for us anymore. So when we have people entering the media now, it's because they, like I started out in media because I had a blog and I was active on Twitter. And the way that people are entering the media now is because they have got podcasts. So when you look around you, it can't just be what's easy to make. You have to kind of bring yourself to the next level. So if you are making a podcast and if you look at all of your guests and they're all just male and white or your friends, you're doing it completely wrong. Because even though that feels like a casual thing that you're doing now, that's how you're going to enter the industry and they're the people that you're going to be bringing with you. Um, so I think that people at a younger age need to kind of take on a personal responsibility to look at what is equality. How can they, as they say, kind of share the microphone? How can they diversify? How can they speak to people they would never normally speak to before? Because everything you do, if you're going to be entering a job in media, you're bringing people with you and you need to look at the people that are following you and do they look different to you? Are they from a different background to you, than you? If they are, then you're doing it right. If you're just bringing in carbon copies of yourself, you're doing it wrong. You're lacking imagination. You're not challenging yourself or challenging the people in the room. So I think that that's, that's how it's going to change. And that's, that's what needs to happen to make things change because we're entering the industry from a different way, but it's still going to replicate the same problems if you don't make a difference from when you're in your early 20s, perhaps. Yeah, I, I mean, there was a, a book that um, a friend of mine recommended um, called The Revolutionary of Words from 400 Years of, of Female Kind of Thinkers and, and Doers. And one was from a, a socialist, uh, Harriet Martineau. She's a British socialist. And she said, I want to be doing something with the pen since no other means of action in politics are in a woman's power. And we kind of discussed that and kind of saying, but how, how we form our power has changed so much. And it is with literally just with what you've just said there, it is formulating a new kind of um, landscape and a new setting and working together and working in a, a more harmonious context with uh, our, our male peers and our male colleagues. And again, it's kind of, it, it really is in a way down to how woke, <laughs> this is the, one of my favourite words this year, woke, uh, they are, you know. And uh, for, with regards to my brother, I was just so delighted that he met, fell in love with a Swedish woman who was just the biggest feminist. Like, Jesus, it was brilliant. But again, it's, it's how do we, like say for instance, if there's a girl listening in, a young girl or a young woman or an aspiring journalist, and they are thinking, wow, you know, this is great because obviously, you know, Louise has had good interactions with male colleagues and peers and Margaret, women on air, there's, there's men that are um, in that collective. But how do women that don't that or might not have that kind of um, and it is it's a great thing to have like you know positivity and it, it, but they might have that and they might come up with barriers where they're met with not as much support and not that kind of a network how do they navigate around that? Well I think a lot of people seem to forget and this is something I do see with a lot of kind of younger writers on Twitter people don't prepare you for the amount of rejection you're going to face when you're yeah. starting a career in media. You you can pitch as many articles, but if someone doesn't know your name, 
they they will not kind of take you on because people don't a lot of editors don't have the time to mentor new writers anymore that's yeah. a, that's gone um with the the lack with, with the the decrease in internships because they were never paid in the beginning um which had its own problems because only people from a certain privileged backgrounds could actually get these internships mm. but as a result internships are a few even fewer on the ground now so that means that there isn't a dedicated system to let up and coming writers have a chance to make mistakes and be told exactly what it is that they're doing wrong. So mm. now that means that younger writers are just not even getting the opportunity to make mistakes. Um, and it, it means that they don't have as many chances to to enter different work fields and kind of get their name out there. Um, so that's that's a big problem. But as a result, people, especially if they've maybe gone on to third education, third education to um, study media, um, they're never told just how many rejections they're going to get. Like I get so many rejections. So many of my pitches don't run. And that's something that's probably not spoken about enough where for if I was to give out 10 pitches every single week, maybe one of them will be picked up. Um, and it, it can be easy to take that personally, mm. but it's actually just the way that the profession works. Um, so I think that if people kind of got to understand that you have to keep on trying and a good way to get that, to do that is to try and develop relationships as well as you can. If you're trying to like, like what I said, maybe start up a podcast with somebody else, reach out to someone because you are not the only person who's not getting this level of rejection. So the way to kind of overcome that rejection is to create something of yourself so that it is, so you have a portfolio that's ready to go. Even if it's a podcast with, with somebody else, or if it's a, if it's an online zine or something like that, just get creative because if you want someone to take you seriously when you're pitching to them for the very first time um, with an article, you need to have something for them to look at quickly to see that you can actually deliver the goods. Um, Because that's, that's what it is. People, when you get an email from someone and you know nothing about them, you need to have a really quick way to search that they're reliable, that they'll deliver their work on time and that'll be of a high quality. And then that's how, that's how you get more jobs. Like that's, that's the simple thing. You kind of, you get in once you do a good job and then you back that up again by doing another good job. But it's that first kind of the first step in the door. That's the hardest one to do. But I think what you need to do is just to, to create a portfolio, even if it's something that you've made entirely by yourself. That's just the way that you get in. Um, unfortunately, even, no matter how many degrees or how many, um, anything like that, that doesn't really make a lot of sense because it's not real until you're actually working in the field. Yeah, and I suppose with with regards to you, because you have such a unique, you know, witty, humorous style of writing as well. And I just uh, read in in a recent interview that you did where you say a good journalist can get you thinking in a certain way. And it's really adapting that into your your format, your style, your structure. And did you, was that a conscious thing that you did? Like, did you kind of, when you were first starting out, you did your internships and magazines and and websites and newspapers. Did you kind of realise at one stage, you know what, if I change up the format and be more personable in my approach and, you know, exert my wit, my charm, my humour, it might set me apart. Or was that just a natural progression for you? Um, I have no idea. (laughs) I... (laughs) I suppose I started out one of my one of the most um, impressionable in um, internships I did was with the Dubliner, yeah, uh, Dubliner magazine, and that like a lot of people kind of started out doing there. But they used to do these monthly internships, and then you would actually get paying jobs after that. Um, but there was just a lot of room for silliness there, and a lot of room for being fun. Um, and in the same way in which the ticket was kind of entering then, because I would have then started writing for the ticket for the Irish Times not too long out of that, there was just a lot of r- room for kind of messing. 
in a, in a very kind of structured way. There was a lot of fun there. Um, and I suppose that maybe co- that comes from, like I was reared on like Top of the Pops and Smash Hits. And that Smash kind of thing. Hits? Oh God, I remember that. <laughs> and so it was all, it was a little bit, it was um, organized chaos. So mm. I think that's, that's where that came from. And I think that that's coming back now. But I, I think, I think the most important thing is as well, if you are getting, becoming established as a writer there has to be something that does make you stand out from some from somebody else because like a lot of my friends they do say to me before they even check the byline they know that I've written something because of the turn of phrase so that's how I know that I'm kind of doing well that people have realized what my voice is and that's just through years of of working and kind of getting there like it wasn't a natural thing I didn't like I've written a lot of bad articles that where jokes have fallen flat and <laughs> the, the only way that I can actually get these things to work is to keep doing it and yeah. to know what works for me and to know what people like and yeah like it's not a natural thing that that took a lot of work and it took a lot of rejection and talk, took a lot of practice and it yeah. took a lot of kind of working on the spot as well because in doing um kind of live music reviews um the way that that kind of works is I've to have my review I've had my copy in 15 minutes after the gig ends so I have to think on my feet as I'm going so as you do that um I'm, I'm I'm editing myself as I go and that's another skill like you have to as I do that I have to learn how to not be precious about certain words like if I think a paragraph is great I have to I have to just throw it away if it's not working overall in the whole piece so it's that kind of thing of learning how to be strict with yourself but also learning kind of what works best for you and what works best for the reader and unfortunately the only thing to do that is working working a lot and working under tough pressure where you have to make those decisions like quite in a cutthroat way yeah I mean um and Margaret I know that you have meandered through like you obviously your your starting point was and your passion and your love was journalism but you've moved to so many different areas and you're a CEO of Clear Inc and, and you've served on Women on Air and you have uh, Broadly Speaking which is you know uh, a, a company if I'm correct I might be uh, but so it's basically you know enabling people to find their voice and and how to deal with public speaking and how to, is, is that kind of in lieu with what Louise was just describing in terms of a journey of finding your voice, finding your tone, kind of distinguishing what sets you apart and then rolling with that? Yeah, I mean, so although I did start working in journalism very young, like I did have different ways. So I worked as a journalist in New York, right, from a very young age. Yeah. And I, it was so difficult to make a living as a journalist in New York. So then I worked on Wall Street for a couple of years in marketing. Um, and that was very good because it was like, oh, this is kind of interesting. But I was always a features journalist. You know, I studied literature and creative writing, and I was always more interested in that. And then when I moved to Ireland, I was doing kind of um, a history uh, research project. And I was here for a few months and I had to use the Irish Times library. And they were like, what's an American girl doing like researching the Irish Civil War? And we got chatting or whatever. And so they were like, send us your CV. You know, we'd love you to do some freelance work. So they saw Wall Street and journalists and they thought I was a business journalist or a financial (laughs) journalist. And I wasn't like, I'm actually terrible at maths. (laughs) Terrible. (laughs) (laughs) Horrible. Right. But it was an opportunity to get in there. Right. So like I, I did my master's at DCU in journalism. I got an internship at the Irish Times, which was paid, but paid badly. But we had an opportunity to rotate around. So I was in features, I was in news and I was in business. 
And the editor at the time was like, well, what are you going to do? You know, I was lucky that I was offered a job kind of wherever I wanted it in the company. And I was like, oh, it's features. Like, it's always been features. And he was like, really? Hmm. I was like, what does that mean? And he's like, well, just think about your career longevity and what makes you unique. You know, it was a really good idea. And he said, you can use your feature writing skills to make business more interesting to the general public. So in the end, I took a job in business journalism, which I was like, oh my God, that's going to be the most boring thing ever. But it wasn't. It was fascinating. And I learned a lot about, you know, being a better, faster journalist that really business journalism was like a Shakespearean drama. And if you cover it that way, it's more engaging to people. So I did that for a number of years, worked at the Sunday time, had some kids and realized I can't do this with two small children. My husband works full time. So something had to give. So my job Mm. and I started Clear Inc. 14 years ago, but it was very much um, using journalism skills to help companies write their annual reports. Or So it's plain English or clear English. Yeah. But then a few years later, we transformed that into a brand communications uh, agency. Um, and then more recently, and this is all down to client demand, but also understand what makes you unique and what people need from you. We're now a leadership consultancy. So we work with top level executives around the world on their communication skills, persuasion and influence, strategy, um, and their leadership skills. How do you get people to follow you? You know, how do you, and a lot of that is about self-reflection. So good leaders understand themselves so they can be authentic with others who will then follow them. So like it has been twisting and turning, you know, a million different ways, but at its heart is it's business and it's about, how can you empower people to be um, their best selves, right? So no matter what I did, it was to inform people as a business journalist about things, you know, consumer affairs or business so that they can make good decisions. And then now the same thing is empowering people with the skills and the tools that they need in order to be the best person that they can be. So that's what drives me. That's my purpose. Yeah. So it's really uh, that, that passing of knowledge and that passing of empowering one another. And and with that kind of in mind, I mean, we all kind of grew up in, I mean, you just mentioned earlier on about uh, the American mindset because it wasn't the Irish one where, you know, you could, do, you could do anything and be equal. We were like, it's a man's world. <laughs> don't, don't be having any notions. I like, that was what I was told. Like my grandmother, like I was, mostly brought up by my granny at my nana and she was like Lynn it's a man's world like you are very very mouthy you have lots of opinions you know and I was kind of looking at her going like you were in the Red Cross during the World War you brought up a whole household of your brothers your mum died you took over the farm you did all these things and you actually enabled these men to have this world that you now talk about like it's being a man's world and it was just so frustrating to kind of think Jesus if these women only knew what they did and how important that their um their place and it was because in, in one way they were perpetuating the, the, the sense of what a man's world was and I think that has seriously shifted and, and it's 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 shifted in a way where our leaders now, some of them, I mean, we're speaking about uh, Mary Robinson recently and the hand that rocks the cradle can rock the system. And I think for me growing up, um, she was such an empowering figure. I mean, I remember going by on the, um, I don't know what, I think it was the number 70 bus because I was coming from Dunboyne into town and there was uh, Mary Robinson, this mural, like, 
tapestry carpet of Mary Robinson um, in Dublin. It's on a window it was in. I think it was a bookstore or something. And I just remember thinking, who, who, I wonder who did that? Like, and, and this woman is amazing. And, and, you know, then she became the president of Ireland and, you know, a woman and a leader and then went on to do amazing things. And she's such an inspiration. So that passing of empowerment was just such a fundamental restructuring of my kind of views of where women sat in society in Ireland and where they could go and for the first time and then Mary McAleese came and it was just this wow women can be in leadership and this is possible again it took another good few years of um, juggling my own kind of insecurities to reach where I am now but in terms of empowering and, and empowerment who have been pivotal empowering figures from the, the female perspective in both of your lives and careers and why I'll let you go first Margaret if I'm going to go first well I don't know if I've ever told this story publicly so um you will be the first ladies um my grandmother right so and my mother so my grandmother um was 14 years of age when she was imprisoned in Kilmainham jail during the Irish Civil War. And that's because she joined Kumanaman. Uh, her mother had joined Kumanaman and was kind of a commander in the Carlo area. And um, my grandmother was caught um, with a message that she was bringing to an IRA flying column or whatever. So she was put into prison, Kilmainham Jail, age 14, completely on her own. And she had an absolute blast. It was wonderful. She said it was one of the best times of her entire life because her father had died when she was age eight. So she was pulled out of school to help rear her three younger children and her mother, who was from, you know, uh, the city or a village and didn't really know anything about running a farm. So at that time, um, women were not allowed to have cattle or sheep on their own. They had to hire in a man to do it. Okay. Because they were too delicate. So what happened is that she wound up having, um, Marianne tool. This is what would be my great grandmother wound up having her brother-in-law move in. Now they didn't get on at all. They were from different sides on the civil war. Um, but she had to do that because she was a woman, she was forced into that. So my grandmother's experience was that she wanted an education but because she was a woman, she wasn't allowed to have it. Um, she, her mother had no freedom because you had to have a man around. And my grandmother then emigrated to the UK, became a nanny, and then emigrated to the United States, uh, where she wound up opening up um, a boarding house, uh, making moonshine and selling it to Coney Island. Yeah, we, we still have her, her bathtub gin recipe. She, <laughs> she sold moonshine to Coney Island during Prohibition. My grandmother made an absolute fortune. She made a fortune, okay, in the United States, had her first child in the United States, but her husband, who went into the United States illegally, um, was kicked out and sent back to Ireland. So he said, you have to come back to Ireland now because we're married and you have to come back. So she gave up all that opportunity in the United States to go back to Ireland where there was nothing. This was like 1932. Wow. She had to hand over all the money that she had made to her mother-in-law as a dowry. Oh, my Jesus Christ. And she wound up having five more children, but her husband was a violent alcoholic who was never around. But because my grandmother was a woman, 
she had to do that all on her own. So my my uh, mother and her siblings said they never knew they were poor. They were just co- told to, you know, go pick frockins in the woods or mm. um, whatever and do this, that or the other thing. So my grandmother wound up emigrating back to United States in 1959 once she had gotten all her children out one by one through education. And she lived with us yeah. in the United States. And she inspired me so much because... Her whole attitude was, well, I'm, you know, a greenhorn. I don't have any education, um, but you know what? You just keep going. Yeah. So she had no opportunities just because she was born a woman. Yeah. But she created her own opportunities. She created her own, but she had a man who violently abused her and was an alcoholic. And she had to overcome that without any help. So that really inspired me to be like, wait a minute, like, why is it because of your gender that you're not allowed to do certain things? And I rebelled against that my whole life. And that really motivated me. You know, if a boy was like, oh, you can't play soccer because you're a girl. I'd be like, get out of my way. Yeah. You know? <laughs> so that's my attitude to life. Yeah. Is don't tell me what I can't do because I'm a girl. Or yeah. don't tell me what I can't do because I'm Irish American or I'm this or that. Just get out of my way. Yeah. Wow. So he definitely inspired me. Well, I think we're kindred because that similar thing happened to my Nana without having to leave Ireland. But her mom passed away and there was a massive farm that my Nana more or less helped her because she actually, funny you mentioned that word, delicate because my nana they had a big abattoir and it was they owned so much land in the village and they had a big farm and her her father was actually um someone who she described as delicate so she said <laughs> my, she said my mother used to carry the beasts across her shoulder across the yard throw them into the and then they'd bleed them that's what she said she said we'd bleed the animals and she said some days the blood, the smell of the blood would cut through your nose. And she said, other days you wouldn't even know at all. And I was just kind of looking at my Nana and thinking of her as a child, looking at her mother, carrying a dead cow or a sheep or whatever across the yard while her father sat there smoking a pipe because <laughs> he was a delicate man. And then um, when the, the father then died and her mother had to get a horse eldest son who at the time was only about 16 or 17 um into look after the farm he then married and once he married he threw her out of the farm after she bringing up the whole lot of them so that was such a commonplace um with regards to land and titles and and handovers and i remember her saying you know and in the interim where my um my grandmother's uh, husband died. Thomas was his name. She, Ellen was her name. She, um, there was probably a few months between when she said, right, I'm going to have to give this over to the eldest son. That a farmer from a nearby, um, who's actually from a very, very wealthy politician's family, who I won't mention. Um, but it was kind of like, he came in and rezoned the land literally overnight and just took it because she didn't have a male figure that was of uh, the age to take over oh, the the basically the, the, what she owned like so he just he just resigned it overnight so she said she's I have to act quick so that's when she just said look you know you're nearly of age I'm going to hand this over to you and went to the son and she lost absolutely everything and then my nana then of course ended up minding her them and she got older and, and she she died um, and it was just kind of looking at this generational situation that was so commonplace in Irish society and in so many others I'm, I'm sure where that sense of, of ownership and what a woman's worth is and their place in society. And it was completely 
and utterly dictated around the men in their life, you know, and and it's and, and it was and it's I think it's amazing that our generation, um, those that came after these amazing women, could reclaim that for our our you know powerful women that came before us because. I'm actually reading a book, Forgotten Women, The Leaders uh, by Zing Zhang. And she speaks about it so much where she mentions all these amazing women. But at the start of the book, she says, we all have forgotten women in our lives. Every one of us, every one of us has a forgotten woman that wasn't able to be remembered for the things that she could have done because the situation that she lived in didn't merit that. And I think that's so important and, and to, to be aware. And because some people mention, you know, these incredible women, Maya Angelou or Gloria Steinem and all these women that, you know, everyone kind of knows about, but we actually have it right in our bloodline. You know, the, the devilment runs through our blood, if you will. Uh, that's so true. <laughs> you know? Oh, stop. And what about um, yourself, Louise? Yeah, I'm probably going to continue the farming. <laughs> yeah. So I'm from a farming family. My my parents are farmers. My uncles, aunts, farmers, grandparents, farmers. Everyone's in a farming family. So that meant when I was growing up, adults rose around. Adults rose in the home. But the people who were in the home most of the time were the women. So that'd be my mother. And also um, I was a sick child. So I was in and out of hospital for most of my childhood and we had a woman called Mrs Kennedy who used to help my mum out so whenever she'd have to bring me to hospital Miss Kennedy was always there and Miss Kennedy was one of these incredible women who she had 14 children of her own um, 14 oh my god yeah. so she had like I think when actually when it was her funeral a few years ago I think she had something about almost 100 grandchildren or something like that like it's a huge she's just one of the she is the typical matriarch who just got everything done looked after everybody um, was just this kind of like guiding hand for a lot of young mothers in in Maynooth where I grew up who were maybe having difficulty kind of adapting to motherhood and she just kind of came in and just she just became part of so many different families lives so she was a huge part of our life but in in turn with that the fact that and I was also the youngest child uh, the youngest sick child of the family of, of three children I was at home a lot so I was surrounded by women a lot. But then when I was in hospital, um, the surgeons would mostly be, would be male. They were male. Um, they would only appear every now and again. But then the rest of the time, my team was women. It was nurses um, who I got to know and kind of as well as kind of like physio. And then as I, I grew on older, I had um, a leg amputation. So the, the woman who does my prosthetic leg, I've known her since I was three years old. So I have this kind of team of women who've been kind of looking after me but also preparing me for the different world that I'd be entering than any other girl my age, because yeah. I was obviously going to be presented with a different set of obstacles. Mm. So from as long as I have any kind of form of functioning memory, I was always prepared to have a challenging life. And I think that that has what has stuck with me because a lot of the time I haven't, I haven't seen my life, my life as challenging it's only when I look back at it now that I realized that I was following a different path to everybody else in terms of like what I was expected to do, what I was capable of doing. Mm. But I was almost always trained to, to be told that I was different, but also to kind of take advantage of that difference. And I, I really do owe it a lot to just, just like when I think of all my times in and out of hospital, it's those incredible kind of, um, the nurses like the nursing team 
who were just in charge, just running the show, where you'd kind of, you'd have the surgeon come in, say something, he'll go off. And then the nurses be like, Anna, you don't have to do that because this is what's going to work best for you. So it was that thing of just knowing that you don't have to take the the voice of authority to be the all demeaning thing just because they have an extra few kind of letters before their first name. Um, it was a thing of just being able to assess the situation. And that kind of comes from a very maternal thing that a lot of the nurses and my medical team had and my mother had, mother has and Mrs. Kennedy had. So I think all along I've had this kind of just inbuilt thing to kind of fight against the system because I was always told that the system wasn't for me. And I think that that has something that has stuck with me. That's why diversity is such a big thing Mm. in everything I do, even if it's not something that I'm always vocal about. It's just there because I've always had to know that the system exists, but only for some people. So I think that that's kind of what it is. It's just being surrounded by women who've kind of prepared me that life is going to be hard. And I just accepted that. And I'm so thankful for those women for doing that because the way that they did it, it wasn't, um, it wasn't making me feel shamed about who I was. Mm-hmm. It was just to be accepted that things were going to be different for me. And then yeah. I was, just had the tools to do that. So that's, I think that's where it came from. That's amazing. I, I know that you were inspired by Stella Young because I, I was looking at your um, TEDx talk there earlier and how kind of you overcame so many obstacles um, because of, you know, accessi- accessibility and, and disability and life in a wheelchair. And how and I loved when you kind of grazed on inspiration porn. And, you know, you're like, I'm an inspiration porn star, you know, can, and I just thought that was just your whole views, everything, how you just delved into that. If, if, if you will, could you just delve into that a little bit for our listeners? Yeah, well, there, there is this thing and you can still see it. It's absolutely ripe on Twitter these days as well. Mm. Um, where if I was to walk into a room, if I was to be in a room and I was just doing my job, people will congratulate me for doing that job despite the fact that I'm in a wheelchair and it's not because I'm there because I'm doing a good job. So you can see like a lot of the time you'll see kind of tweets going around where it's like, see this um, child with a hearing impairment hear music for the first time ever. And it's, the the child itself is then used as a tool for non-disabled people to feel better about themselves. Yeah. it's always this comparison. It's like, well, if this person can do this, then my situation isn't as bad as theirs. Yeah. And that's a really unfair narrative that has kind of been put upon disabled people for so long, where a lot of the time you are not going to congratulate for the work that you're doing. It's congratulating for the fact that you were disabled and doing this work. Um, I think maybe a really good example of this in my career is that I never wanted to write about disability. Like I really didn't. It, the fact that the lack of access was interfering with my work Mm. but I had to start bringing it up and then I was maybe put into this unfair position where I had to keep writing about my disability from a personal point of view yeah and when I was actually just going through the motions of becoming a wheelchair user which is unfair I didn't know I wasn't digesting what was happening to me at the time but I was still filing maybe a thousand words on it so it was a very strange psychological time that I was going through Mm. and I think in that position as well sometimes people who are disabled are almost expected to share their personal stories to make non-disabled people understand them rather than letting non-disabled people do the work and learn about disability themselves. It's always at a personal cost to the disabled person. And that's where the inspiration thing comes from because it means that all that people see of us is our disability and how they can benefit from it. Um, 
And that's something that I try so hard to shake because it's not my job to make people feel better about themselves. Mm-hmm. If I want to write about disability, I actually want to shame non-disabled people into the way that they view us and the mm-hmm. way they refuse to accommodate us. Because I actually got, I used to run a blog called Legos in Dublin, which was all about access. Yeah. And I stopped writing about it. I stopped doing it because um, access just wasn't improving. Mm. and people's attitudes weren't changing I'd be slapped on the back for saying oh what a what an inspiring piece you've done but that in that inspiration didn't affect change and yeah. that frustrated me so much because people are so happy to go for the quick feel good fix they're not happy to put in the hard work to actually make make improvements for everybody around so that's that's kind of like the big cause and effect and why inspiration culture is such a sham because it's all good to just share an article and say that you feel good about yourself but the mm. lasting effects don't come into action ever so inspiration is inspiration is nothing unless you do something afterwards and that's just I felt like I was just being used as a tool and that's mm. what a lot of disabled people feel like they are to just make people feel good but actually I kind of want to make you feel bad to do a better job for everybody else like yeah. I, I think a lot of people need to feel bad about the way that they treat disabled people and in yeah. terms of the way that they feel they treat women and people of colour as well because mm-hmm. you can see it at the moment as well with the effect of Black Lives Matter matters where people are maybe using uh, black people to get something done but they're not doing enough they're not get, getting beyond v- virtue signalling and just using it to yeah. up their own um, even their own profiles and how people look at them and it's they're not actually doing anything to help with the issue at hand yeah they're just treating it like a hot topic of the moment yeah. But, yeah. like this is hundreds and hundreds of years that we have to undo like mm. This and it can't you can't just be calling in people as sort of a token interview. You have to actually clear space that this like this thing, you need to clear space for others so that the, the change is actually put into action. Um, because if you're just doing it at the moment where it's it's just a tokenistic thing, it is you that's you doing it to make you feel good for that moment, to feel like you've done your job. Um, because like um hard work doesn't come easy. So yeah. if you if you want to if you want things to improve, you have to you have to kind of put the toll in and yeah. you have to clear space. I just always found it remarkable because the more I got into working in the music industry, I ended up working with a lot of music festivals and like loads of different. Fe- and I remember just kind of so many instances where I was sitting in, you know, boardroom meetings and, and I, I like it would be always a thing where I kind of looked around at the team and went, you know, there's where's the accessibility? Like, what are we going to, you know, have this? accessibility in the festival and what I noticed was that if they had between two to six and that's been generous uh, spots that could cater for like it, be it on a in a festival where they'd have a zone where a wheelchair could go up on one ramp one ramp you're kind of going but there's a lot more people in wheelchairs than just uh, a few that will just fill this kind of like oh I have I can I can allot this space and that's it and then the rest of the people that's who we are targets are and whatnot and you're kind of going wow but and I've seen it increase over kind of the last five years which is which I feel is, is really amazing but I'm saying that from a very privileged viewpoint and I know that I've I've spoken about this to you before like in the past where you know we were talking about access and passes to festivals if I was inviting you to any but ha- have you seen that that has changed or because I, I always remember them instances, them moments in meetings where I'm discussing, you know, plans and overviews and, you know, where the toilets are going to sit and stuff like that. Because I've been so lucky to be in their meetings from, from the manifestation of a festival to the, you know, planning and the kind of, you know, all the different aspects of putting it together and the site and stuff like that. And it's been such a learning experience. And 
I have seen it kind of improve, but that's from my view and that's not from, from your perspective. So have you seen it kind of get better over the last few years or do you feel like, you know what, it's not changing at all? It has improved. Um, I've definitely caused a bit of a fight with some festivals for yeah. that to happen. Yeah. But it hasn't improved enough because, like you said, there's way more people with disabilities who would like to go to festivals and like to go to concerts, but they don't feel safe enough to go because they don't trust that the facilities that have been put in place will actually accommodate them properly. So mm. that's why, that is the reason why people with disabilities aren't going to more festivals and more concerts. But also in the way, like I know now that I am coming at it from a privileged view because I am Louise Bruton, the journalist in a wheelchair. Mm. I I know the people who are running these events. I know the people who are doing the PR people. So they are doing the PR for the events. So they will make sure that me, their friend or their client is looked after. So Mm. I'm going to be getting different treatment. I get special treatment now because... I am their friend or I am their client or I am their colleague. Um, But with that in mind, when the facilities that are put in place, you, for disabled people, you are not getting the same experience as everybody else. So if I was to use the viewing platform, that would mean that I'm only allowed to have one friend come up with me. That is not a concert experience. That is not. That's mine is crass. That's what that is. Yeah. When you go to a festival or when you go to a concert, you are there with a group of friends and you're yeah. there to have a good time. And um, you're there to dance. You're there to be bold. You're there to do all of those things. But then if you were to go on a viewing platform, you are there with your one person who is referred to as your carer. Mm. And you were thrown onto this one viewing platform with a mix of ages. So you could be sitting next to actual children because that's the safest place for them. So if I'm at a concert, I can't do course or nothing. <laughs> yeah, I don't want to be sitting next to a five-year-old. So it, it's just that big thing of like, well, how do you actually view disabled people? Are we are we children? Is that is that how you're viewing us? Um, yeah. Are we there to be minded? No, we just need to have a space where we can see the concert. That is it. Like mm. it's one of those, it's just a very strange way where there's so much to undo because yeah. um, access is such a tokenistic thing. It is just this list where boxes are being ticked off. Um, but if the box is just ticked off, you don't actually see how it's going to like socially or psychologically affect the person who's using it. Because if I have to go up there with just one person, that automatically strips me of my my youth, yeah. um, strips me of my recklessness. Like it strips mm. me of things that make the human experience so yeah. and, it, and it's an exclusivity as opposed to an inclusivity, you know? Yeah, exactly. It's like you're being kind of penned away. So instead, like the only way that I could think that this would be easier because we do need the raised platforms if there was multiple viewing platforms to choose from. So because it's always in the same place as well. The viewing platform is always in the same place. So that means that I will be three quarters of the way around from the, away from the stage if I was to use the viewing platform when I want to be up dead and center. Or there's some people who want to be at the very back and kind of barely participate, but we just don't have that choice. So yeah. if you're a very kind of fervent music fan, you want to be able to have the choice to be the top fan of the front of the concert. You don't want, want to always be three quarters of the way back. So it's, it's kind of funny in that way where if I was to always use the being platforms, that means that I always have the same gig experience because I am in the exact same place that I am every single time when the excitement of the live music um, experience is that you don't know what's going to happen. Yeah. So, like that's that's kind of what people have to think about because yeah, there's it's the the practical thing of putting this thing here that people can use, but like how can you actually give people the human experience of 
being at a live uh, music event. Yeah, and the immersive experience because that is what live music is. It's it's to be fully immersed within it, um, and and it's you know there's such it's such an important thing again to have inclusivity for everybody and not just exclusivity for a few because of again like you know we we, we touched on it earlier on of, of who you know and you know may second sort stuff out or if you're in a certain position because there are others that aren't and don't have the similar type of privileges that others have um and yeah it's just it's i hope that that has opened people's eyes to that massive issue that that is out there you know and i again like just even just sitting in the meetings i know that it's something that people do want to be able to have accessible but a lot of them just they just don't know how to do it and like in your in, in an ideal situation how could that be done to have someone with a disability on the board like that is like yeah. the only way because things are only good unless you have someone there to kind of test them out as what happens so if you say oh yeah that's perfect put the viewing platform there then if someone with a wheelchair with a, with a crutch or walking aid comes along, they're like, well, that doesn't make any sense because if you want to go through here, you have to cut through, I don't know, the, the queue for all of the port which is just a big mass of people to kind of work your way through. So it's, you need someone there who can see it from the different perspective. Like, because a lot of the time when you are looking up the way that um, access facilities are provided, it's from a non-disabled person who has just decided this is what's for you. And it, that's a very difficult thing to argue against because, like, how how, how do you like it, it's it's trying to argue it like kind of brick and brick and cement. Like, how do you how do you change this thing? Um, but it is to have someone in there. But unfortunately, um, in Ireland there isn't a huge amount of opportunities for that. In the UK there is. Um, Attitude mm. is everything is a fantastic access. Um. A company designed specifically for creating more accessible features for disabled for disabled people at gigs and festivals. But here in Ireland, it's smaller teams um, who are just kind of going to rehash the same system year in year out because they just don't they don't have enough people. Yeah. Well, I hope some are listening in and and take note of of what you just said because it's so vitally important to safeguard that experience for everybody and not just for uh, you know th- who who is considered the most important. Um, people that should be looked after everyone should be catered for um and and with that just to kind of because my god i could talk to you both for hours um you know it, it, it is it, a lot of things is uh based around how we construct things from ergonomics to how we um participate in the world like and i don't know whether you know, you have because a lot of us are kind of saying, "Oh, we have free time at COVID," but so many people are really busy. But we were kind of touching on the topic of a feminist book club and what books have inspired uh, us over COVID. And I read one by um, called Invisible Women. I don't know whether either of you have read it, and it's it kind of goes through gender bias um, in the in the world and how the world has been created, designed, uh, constructed by men and for men and it touches on a disability it touches on uh, race issues it touches on you know the size of women versus the size of men from how handheld phones are totally designed for the male hand for automated systems and cars don't identify women's voices so if a woman sits in a, a certain car you know voice command it didn't actually didn't even identify what a woman's voice was because it is 
in the AI in the car to only recognize the male voice. So it's these kind of things that I think a lot of people are again that woke. It's it's people are coming around to seeing things from other people's perspectives with the likes of what you just said with uh, disability and within the Black Lives Matter. We are we come from such a, a privileged place and we don't. I mean, I, I have friends of mine that have said, "Oh yeah, but you know, Ireland." You know, Irish people had to go through slavery. They were sent over to, you know, Australia. Blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, but they were white, so they could regain their, you know, freedom. They had that total Irish opportunity. People, Irish people were never slaves. Not at all. You know, they, they, slaves, you not, know? You know and, and it's that thing of, oh, yeah, but like, you know, and uh, everyone has their struggles in life. Yes, everyone has their struggles, but at different, <laughs> completely different levels of, of, of the entire spectrum, you know. Um, so that's a book I would definitely recommend. I mean, it's just brilliant to, to our listeners. And, and um, if you haven't read it yourselves, it's just opened my eyes so much and, and led me to do the, the gender disparity report which uh, Louise I know you covered and, and Margaret you've been such a oh my god like really amazing support throughout the whole process um, and them types of books empower women empower men empower people to ask the questions to make the change so just to kind of close things off what books um, or even a quote a mantra whatever inspires you both as individuals in, in and both in your professions to be better and do better and kind of to pick you up um whenever you're having a, a kind of a tough, a tough time, because these are tough times and, and, you know, a lot of people can be consumed by anxiety and, you know, I had Ruth on, uh, Ruth on on there um, on the first podcast. And she said, you know, she just focuses on the moment at hand, be it just looking at a fan um, in a, in a room and just going, you know, I am here. The fan is there. Um, by fan, I mean like an extractor fan. It could be anything. And she just kind of zones in and says, I'm here. I'm not anywhere else. The past is in the past. The future is in the future. The present is now. And it's just something as simple as that. And just kind of going, you know, and she read a, a lot of books, but Deepak Chopra is one of um, a writer and a thinker that really inspired her. So who would be that for you guys? Um, well, there's a quote that I've kind of, I, I'm going to completely paraphrase here. I have written mm. in a different room and I don't even know who it's by, by who it's by. Um, but the idea is how far away from change do you want to be? So if you're kind of standing in a river, do you want to just stay in that same spot or do you want to, do you want to go with the tides or like, do you want change to be so far into you that you don't know what's going on? Or do you want to be part of the tide that's making that change happen? So that's why I never want to leave things too long. And like I use that kind of personally, it's, it's something I use, say, if say relationships are changing, do I want to not see a friend for so long that the person I meet in a few years time is so different to the person I used to know? Or do I want to be along with them and seeing how it is that they change? Like, so that's kind of something that I use kind of more personally than professionally. It's don't keep your distance if you don't be shocked by the person you're going to meet next. It's just brilliant, especially in this day and age where communication is vital to maintain that connection with people. Um, I guess for me, it is, you know, there's a thing in coaching or whatever, it's called like mental models or, you know, frameworks or viewpoints. So it's kind of the, the way that we look at the world has a, um, a great deal of impact on how we do in the world and how we experience the world. So something I've thought about since I was really young, and I'm not sure where it came from, but it's that every human is a unique gift right? There's only one of you ever in the history of the world. And I think our duty 
as an individual is to open that gift, the package that we've been given, and to see what's inside and to help other people see what's inside and their gift and what that offers the world. That's beautiful. And it's so, and that, again, it's going back to, to matriarch and families. I think that was what a lot of my upbringing anyway, like my, my Nana was, you know, you're one of a kind. <laughs> and sometimes that was almost said in a sneer fashion, but it's, but it's not, you know, it's embracing our unique qualities and our individuality in a world like, um, you know, Oscar Wilde, the, the one of the biggest narcissists, <laughs> but like, you know, it's all I have to declare is my genius. You know, it's kind of that self-love, that self-appreciation, that kind of, you know what, I've got this, I'm totally capable and that's all I have to declare, you know, and it's, I think what's great now is that people are coming around to that and embracing their individuality, embracing themselves. And um, that's a wonderful, wonderful frame of mind. Thanks for sharing. Um, look, it was so lovely to talk to you both. And there's so much inspiration that has come from this conversation in how you have both navigated through your careers and how you have overcome different obstacles thank you so much for sharing it with uh with us today and um i hope to speak to you both real soon thank you so much linda 